to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carleen McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels, from those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession to those who've never had their voice heard before. This episode is entitled Diversity in the Pharmacy Workplace. This is to discuss diversity, not just as it results in cultures or genders, but in all aspects in diversity, people that have faced challenges, people who've heard about other people's challenges, and some of the things that we should consider when we're looking at diversity in the workplace, inclusion of different groups, and how we can best support and utilize everybody to the best of their experience and ability. Diversity in the workplace. This is something that I'm quite passionate about because I believe that a lot of companies have become quite innovative and have diversity and inclusion like committees and it's great that there is diversity but inclusion is a different one to have to implement. I find being a female in the workplace and having so many roles and having been successful in many roles um I find that that has led to, to quite a few extra challenges as a female. Instead of it being a professional um, who is doing their best to do their job and takes on board feedback, continues to develop, and I find it's harder and you always have to continuously prove yourself. Whether it be discussions where I've even had in my past, whether it, yeah, whether you're looking at a career span that's yeah over 15 years of um, working in a variety of roles with a variety of different companies, um, having workplaces where you're asked to be, I don't know, softer, more vulnerable, any of the above, I question how far we still have to go with addressing females in the workplace quality because it's not just it's not just about the numbers it's about the attitude it's about the way that we speak about diversity in the workplace it's when people achieve things and it not being and it not being gender specific if we could de-identify people and we just looked at a resume as a bunch of skills or we just interviewed someone as a group of skills or we just managed someone as a group of skills, then I wonder how many conversations would be different. Would we speak to uh, a female and ask her to be more feminine? Would we speak to a male and say, well done, you're doing a great job because you're dominating? I wonder how much these gender role stereotypes carry on in the future. I wonder how far we've come when yes. I still feel that, oh, even in my experience, that um, females are still asked to be a little bit less assertive, be a little bit softer, be a little bit more feminine. Um, and I question how far we really have come, how far we really have to go. And it's not just about it's not just about the numbers; it's about the attitudes, and it's about the way that we speak. And until those things change, and until we can see past gender or anything that or anything that can separate or differentiate us and we just look at people as people and then we're always going to be holding each other back and to me that's a huge gap and it's pretty disappointing 
um, aspect of of the workforce um, at current. I think for 2018 to still be in a position where we're experiencing that um, is really, really disappointing. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think that there's even one or two people alone that are experiencing this. In one way or another, we're all being guided to be... Um, well, enough people can be guided to be a certain way and have certain characteristics. And I feel that um, there's still a lot of gender or stereotyping, gender placements. There's still a disparity in the wage gap. There's still uh, differences even when you go to discuss um, your wages and even wanting to have an increase in your wages. And sometimes for different people, it can be assertive and affirmative action and viewed well and for others it's like oh, maybe a little bit too assertive and I question are these terms always attributed to gender or even sometimes attributed to gender and I ask you to think about the last time that you looked at someone possibly and thought um, and, and thought about the gender of them and how they were carrying themselves and whether you had a bias there's now that term about unconscious bias and how we all carry it and that can carry itself in stigma and carry itself in how we associate or attribute different attributes to different genders. But I would say that stigma is about you, like it's about your opinion and how someone else that might be different to you makes you feel. And I question what responsibility that person has for that um, I question how open you are to difference. Um, and I guess it's always important for us all to pull ourselves back and say, <laughs> is there anything that clouded my judgment in that decision? And if it's about how you perceive someone, then uh, the only way to get rid of stigma and perceptions is to really get to know people, to really have conversations and to stop judging people by how they look and how you expect them to be. Because it isn't anybody's responsibility to meet your expectations. Um, but it is, I think, everybody's responsibility to be open-minded. To give people a chance. Um, and to make a decision from there. A way that, I guess, when I think about it. And I think about um, patients' experiences. And some patients that have described some challenging experiences from healthcare professionals. And how they've been viewed. I feel sad that someone would put their own opinions onto somebody else. I feel sad that someone wouldn't open their mind enough to get to know someone to see what other attributes they have to offer. For me, if something happens, then I will try to um, pull myself aside and say, was there anything that, yeah, that anything I could have done better or anything that came across? And also, I think a little bit of self-awareness. I'm aware that if something happens... Um, and let's say I get asked a ridiculous question um, or someone puts you in a very uncomfortable position, I'm very aware that my voice changes and my facial expression will change. Um, so when I'm put in those circumstances, I actually pause for 30 seconds. I don't say a word. I don't, I don't move. Because straight away in those 30 seconds, that comes across. So my self-awareness is to pause, literally, before responding because sometimes, because it's not about you, it's about what you can do for the other person. It's about personal responsibility, 
maturity, open-mindedness. But in this interaction where people are stigmatizing others, it's about you more than it is about them. And I urge you to get to know them. In this episode, Carolyn Huxhagen discusses thinking outside of the box and the questions to ask prior to starting university. Diversity in the workplace is a hard area to think about. Um, And I've encountered this in my time at PSA with intern training programs and um, then graduates who don't get work where um, they feel that they're being discriminated against and that's come back as a a problem. Um, It's really... It is really difficult for um, some disabilities to be um, in a work environment in things like a community pharmacist. And I'll give you the example of we had a graduate who was deaf. And so her ability to work in the community pharmacy had its limitations so she couldn't ease well she couldn't answer the telephone so she couldn't be the the person who answered queries from the um the consumers or the doctors or whatever um so you have to be able to find the right role for that person and but and you just have to think outside the square sometimes as to what practice area that they could work in then I've had um, pharmacists who due to their speech impediment um, have struggled with doing telephone counseling and things like that so I I think it's really sad but I do think that there are um, there are questions to be asked at the beginning of the university career as to where that person expects that they want to practice and how they want to practice and do they have a vision of how they can fit into a team. And I get a little bit angry when I end up with this problem at an intern level that the university has taken the money but not ever sat down and talked about all do you truly understand what community pharmacy is like and can, where do you see your place and how do you fit into the team? I think it's a little bit um, naughty that a, pharmac- a pharmacy school would take the money without having a very deep and meaningful conversation about place of practice. And because then I'm the bad-ass person who says, well, Maybe your role is to work in at a place like Medicare where you become a data manager with your basic with your knowledge of pharmacy and that's not that's not kind and that's not um, kind to the person or it's not kind to me having to try and mend the bridge um, so I think there are pharmacies that take um take on these roles and find the place but I also think there's pharmacies that they never could accommodate it because they just aren't it's it's just not them Um, and yeah I've I've certainly had to find the right spot for people in the past and there there are places and there are roles but 
at the beginning, before entering into university, I think a very deep and meaningful and enlightening discussion has to happen with that person to say, well, where do you want to practice? How do you want to practice? What do you think your roles are? And how do you think the pharmacy can accommodate your disability so you can fulfil the role that you want to do? Do you have a vision of how this would work? Have you truly researched how what you want to be would fit with your disability? And you know, if they can genuinely come back with, well, this is how I can do this and this is how I can do that, then, you know, so be it. But, um, you know, and you can do it. And I, um, in Bowen, a uh, tiny little community, beautiful community, there's a girl on the checkout register in the, um, the small um, uh, grocery store that's next to the pharmacy, and she's deaf. She has a little sign on her till that says, I'm deaf. Um, good morning, I'm deaf. Um, you know, it says, good morning, my name is, and I am deaf. And, but she, um, she is well-known and well-loved by the community, and, and the, this little um, IGA has accommodate. She's beautiful, and she uh, interacts, she does her job and, and that. But, and it's, it's just amazing to see how that business has made the effort to include her in that but the town all know her and you know as they go through but they they have systems in place to help her um she has her little whiteboard there and um and she communicates quite easily and gets her gets her job done quite fluidly but in pharmacy the biggest thing that I've encountered is access um you know is the pharmacy designed so you know, you can get round in your wheelchair and that. And um, what roles do you do you envisage that you can perform in that pharmacy? And um, some pharmacies do it beautifully, and others just put up complete blocks um, when presented with the problem. Sam Flood discusses the challenges of finding an intern position as someone who has a physical disability. Struggling to find intern work, partly because of disability I guess you could say I don't know if, <laughs> don't know if I can entirely pin it on that but also yeah being a graduate but not registered um, you're still more or less a student I went to University of Tasmania uh, graduated Bachelor of Pharmacy in December 2016 uh, spent most of 2016 the yeah looking for work the Tasmanian hospital system recruits very early in the university year so I think it was around April, May, uh, applications needed to be in and they interviewed in May and June, which was great because that was around exam time as well. So that was a bit more pressure on. Um, so I was doing that as early as I could and also looking for work in community pharmacies as well throughout the year. Um, and then towards the, uh, I guess, September, October, everyone else had something lined up and I still didn't, which was not a terrific feeling. Um, everyone graduated, everyone started work. I still didn't have a job. Um, spent most of that summer, yeah, stressing out about it at home. Um, ended up deciding that I would move back to Hobart and at least try and volunteer somewhere, anywhere who would be interested in having me, um, give me something to put on my resume and some any kind of foot in the door would be fantastic. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so I spent another year in Hobart 
kind of as a graduate but not doing my registration year. And I obviously can't speak for every potential employer. Uh, there was certainly a mix of responses from different potential employers. Um, I'd always try and be upfront in any application and contact about my physical disability. Um, so that was... That kind of filtered out a lot of people straight up. If they weren't interested from that point, they'd just say they weren't interested in an email or something. I was like, yeah, okay, great. Or I'd go to an interview and this, the part that confuses me is that they wouldn't say they had a problem. I'd go to the interview and then after the interview, they say they weren't interested. I'm like, well, why did we have the interview then? We could have told me a lot earlier if that was the case. I'm not saying that's okay, but it would have been nice to kind of know that earlier so I wasn't chasing things that weren't going to go anywhere um, but I think meeting potential employers who are surprised by the fact that I'm in a wheelchair well use a wheelchair not in it full time but um, yeah they don't take the kind of 30 seconds it would take to talk to me about how little it would take to change in a workplace for it to work for me um, yeah, I think from that point of view, ignorance is probably the best word for it. Um, yeah, just people not bothering to take the time to have a chat about how it could work. And yeah, obviously I can't speak for every employer, um, but that seemed to be a pretty strong trend in my job hunting career. People just need to keep an open mind and be willing to have those kinds of conversations as far as talking to potential employees about anything they would need changed if anything at all um nothing major and nothing critical that would stop my career kind of thing like it's pretty much just any kind of heavy heavy lifting not that we do much at all and anything that's up high so the patient scripts that we keep on file that top shelf there's no way i can get to it but then some of the other stuff can't either like we have to get someone who is tall who can reach it. Um, but outside of that, I yeah, I think I'm, I'm managing all right and it has no major problems so far. Um, yeah, I think I, I am fortunate in that I'm okay to stand and walk for short distances and periods of time at a time, um, which makes it a lot easier for me. But at the same time, it shouldn't be a problem for someone who is permanently wheelchair-bound either. Um, yeah there should always be a way around just a matter of figuring out how the good thing about most people who have a physical disability is that they're incredibly adaptable because they've been doing it their whole lives and that's a trait I think I can bring to any workplace that I yeah I'll, I'll figure it out it might not be as conventional as everyone else's methods but I will find a way to get it done there are definitely a lot of times where I was pretty ready to give up but knew that I'd invested so much time in this that if I stopped now, I mean, what would I do? Like, it's something I've been determined to achieve as far as finding a place to do my pre-registration and then becoming a registered pharmacist. Um, so I think, yeah, from that point of view, I didn't want to give up. Possibly, yeah, other people may or may not be so determined, which is, I don't know, pretty much just keep annoying people and hassling potential employers until something comes through the cracks um i was fortunate enough that i was able to use social media 
as a way to expand my search and that made a huge difference. Um, that's yeah, more or less how I ended up finding the position I'm in at the moment. And yeah, it was a bit of a, when it rains, it pours kind of thing. I'd gone from having absolutely no offers for about a year. And then suddenly people were actually pretty interested in me, which was nice. Um, but also really stressful because I had, yeah, suddenly had options and then didn't know what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And yeah, it was a bit of a sensory overload, I guess you could say. Shane Jackson discusses his own observations with diversity in the workplace, stigma, and the experiences of family members who have had barriers to accessing employment. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, I personally have um, uh, my sister has cerebral palsy. She's 34. Um, my daughter has autism. Uh, so I, I understand the um, challenges uh, for people in the workforce. Uh, my sister was actually employed um, for about 18 months by the Tasmanian state government to go and teach at the TAFE, right? So she would come in and she'd talk to people who were doing the certificate three and four in disability care. I can't remember whether that's the exact name. Uh, and that was one of the most rewarding times of her life. And then it stopped, and she's now, there's a vacuum there, right? Vacuum in contribution. So we need to do better. There's no doubt we need to do better. It comes back to a stigma discussion as well. Uh, people are different. Can they perform the job adequately? Uh, it goes to feeling worthwhile in society. Um, and, you know, I'm hopeful when we have a really you know, good operational NDIS. Again, I've had experiences in the NDIS for, for my daughter and my sister. Um, that needs to obviously improve. But employment that that is appropriate for that individual needs to be a key component of that, not just the social aspects. You know, we talk about that, you know, somebody receives funding so they can go and have a coffee, you know, every day. Or, but what about funding so that they can potentially access workplace employment? makes them feel valuable and worthwhile and a, and a contributor. So we need to, need to do that, and we actually need to do that as a society um, because, you know, pharmacy can't do that on its own. Um, but it's, it's a real challenge, Jared, um, and it's something that I, I feel, you know, I feel quite disheartened that we don't do that. But I, I don't have a single answer for you. It's a, it's a larger... It's a larger issue and it's something that really needs to be tackled and tackled well. Elisa Poloni discusses the proportion of women in the workplace compared to representative roles and whether de-identification of resumes may minimise selection bias. Pharmacy doesn't give many great examples of women in leadership, unfortunately. We make up the majority of the pharmacy profession, so I think about 60 to 70% of pharmacists are women. And only about a third of pharmacy owners in this country right now are women. That is a jump from what it was a few years ago. I saw some statistics, I think, from, I think it was the 1930s. And I think there was like less than 1% of pharmacies back then were owned by women, which is completely unsurprising, I suppose. So we have come a long way. But I still think that proportion should be matched to the proportion of women in our profession. And 
that does disappoint me a little bit. But at the same time, I think we're making good progress. I think um, more and more we're seeing leaders or leadership groups embrace diversity in their boards. Sometimes that means gender, sometimes that means workplace experience, sometimes that means view of the world. But irrespective, I think we should be embracing diversity wherever we can, because I think that's how we get the best outcomes for our profession. Elise and Jared then discuss society and culture and its influence on diversity. It's really frustrating to see people say things like, oh, but I wasn't given any privilege at all, you know, coming up. And I'm like, the fact that you can't understand what that means, it's not a specific thing to you, it's the way our culture affects the the experience that you've had. You may not have realised what has benefited you or has held you back, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And, and getting people to understand that it's not a personal thing, it's looking at how society has been bent in such a way. One of the, one of the biggest bugbears I have is people who say, oh, you know, women choose jobs that are lower paid. So no, no, society values those jobs less because they're done by women. And that's a big problem and people don't see it. I can't remember what the three male names are. It might be like John... Bob and something else I don't know three common names that if if you were just born with that name you instantly have a higher chance of being a CEO which is incredible but it's it's unsurprising Um, and I think that again it's it's around I've heard of organizations who are de-identifying resumes and things now so the name is gone so there's no bias there's no bias on gender there's no bias on nationality and you just read the skills of the person and then you decide based on their skill set if they're someone that you want to interview. I think it's really unfair that a name or the way that something is pronounced or you know, your familiarity with it determines if that person is the right person for the job or not. It's a, it's a tough one. A number of the boards that I'm on are government department boards and they actually have a policy of diversity. There must be an attempt to, to obtain um, a certain mix The reason for that is it is impossible to say that if you have a representative body and that body is all of one demographic. Now, unfortunately, at the moment, it's mainly men, but if if you've got one demographic there, it is impossible for that to be representative. It's impossible for you to say, we have got all the best people for for this board, because you cannot possibly have that if everybody's had the same experience or basically the same experience and the same uh, privilege in getting there or the same struggles in the alternative. And it's it's very interesting to de-identify so long as they still take into account. I guess that might be, here's the pool of people that we're going to look at at that point and then from that point forward say, okay, we, we need to look at getting enough diversity as a second-tier um, issue. A lot of boards also you know, assign what skills they're looking for. So we want someone that's really strong in accounting. We want someone that knows about infrastructure. We want someone that's got experience writing tenders or whatever it may be. And then they're they're appointing for those particular skill sets rather than I mean I think quotas and things are important in the in the initial stages of getting minority representation into boards and things but gosh it'll be nice one day when we just don't have to talk about it and it's just expected that there'll be a mix I don't know if I'll be alive for it but I really really hope (laughs) that I will be Renee Beardmore and Mark Norton share their views on committee and board representation and how representation changes with different populations from student body, the makeup of the profession and even attendance at conferences. So in terms of committee representation and diversity, uh, I think that um, (laughs) we've got a long way to go in all ways, shapes and forms. I would say... Um, 
sorry, I'm talking over you now. I would say that pharmacy's leading a lot of professions because we've um, we've got. If we talk about the sort of gender diversity, there's a lot more females graduating. So we, I think, we're seeing. But at the committee level, Mark. At our committee level, at ACT. Yeah, we're, we're pretty diverse. We're but if I think about the, you know, if you look at, I remember I had the court, the need to look at the medical board mm. who was on the medical board once, and I was kind of shocked. It doesn't match the um, the VMOs and consultants or registrars you see in the hospitals. I can assure you, um, in terms of you know cultural backgrounds. Um, so I think at that level. Some of the committees highly politicised, and so you end up with a certain sort of person. At the national level, the the diversity has probably got a lot more to go. Yes, is that what? Yeah, at the at the national level, at, a, at our local branch level, I think we've we we're quite balanced. Yes, we are. Um, we are, and and yeah, you know, I agree. The professions, you know, I hate this word, the feminisation of the profession. I just think it's an awful word. Um, you know, that certainly had an impact. Um, but if I look at the committees that I've sat on, you know, and that I've been secretariat for, so like the Australian Committee on Medicine Scheduling, um, it's diversity, like gender diversity, in terms of the specific example that you've given, Jared, in terms of disability, no, not there. Um, cultural background, no, not there. Um, gender identification, no, not there. Um, so, you know, hopefully they won't take as long to come about as it's taken for female participation. It's one of the uh, things that I, uh, I... In particular, the um, ethnic background diversity is not there. You only have to look at the conference. We know a lot of graduates, particularly from the larger schools, are, have an Asian background, but they're not, I don't think, represented at the conference um, Why do we think that? We were talking about this last night, and is it because of the dim opportunities that they perceive to see in the profession? I think yes, but I actually also think it's a generational shift. Um, my husband's an academic, not in science, and you know, in my work, we see people turn up applying for jobs at 27 and they've got three degrees, you know, two undergrads and a master's. There's a, there's a degree of degree collecting going on, people rolling on to PhDs not to go into academia, Um, PhDs for whatever reason, and a PhD does make you narrow for some time um, if you don't choose to go broad again, and some people doing PhDs for ego, they're not doing it for, you know, everyone did a PhD before just to, you know, be an academic and give back, Um, and people that do masters used to be you do your undergrad you go into a job or for a period of time and um and then you go do your masters they're just rolling straight into masters with no work experience so i think it's a generational change as well but i think what you're saying mark though is that the people that even the ecps from different cultural backgrounds and not necessarily coming to these conferences. No, that's right. I think uh, I mean I'd be interested to know the numbers, but you only have to look around. And mm. m- my recent trip to Canada, it was the same. 
the same discussions were had that they had a large uh, cohorts of international students um, in some areas graduating just as many as their local students and they weren't really represented at at their national conferences either so uh, it, it's not unique we're preaching to the converted mm. you know and that th- there's a whole heap of pharmacists out there like you come to the conference it is the same faces the committees are the same people putting their hands up and our profession's not unique in that um but i think that you know there's a whole heap of pharmacists we're not you know as as branch president and vice president hats on you know they're not members you know they're not engaging you know they've got they're motivated differently to um with whatever it is and they're not motivated to come to the conference and, and, you know, we need to capture that data, analyse it, and have a look it's at what It's interesting. Uh, I've got a student this semester looking at these issues um, across pharmacy specifically. So I know why some of my friends aren't here, you know, and, um, you know, sort of my old pharmacist cohort. And, you know, they're completely disenfranchised um, with the profession... They, we all focus, and we talked about this at our branch committee, you know, we very much get focused. Let's get these members as students and actually you weren't at this meeting, the members with students and we keep hang on to them and that's how we're going to keep membership and participation. Um, but the dropout rates are, you know, and I said, look, let's apply the 80-20 rule here, you know. is that That's a lot. That's that wave that Shane had up on his slide that's a lot of people to engage with. And then you've got this sort of fatter plateau and then a thinner plateau at the end. This fatter plateau might be the low-hanging fruit, you know. These people are disenfranchised. They feel like that their experience in the profession is not rewarded. It's an hour at the pharmacy that's, that's been commoditized to be that they're paid at the lowest possible price, a commodity price. And so they're that their experience is not recognised and they're disenfranchised, but they also have limited um, ability to transition to other careers. We should be engaging with them to get them back in. It might be worth looking at, again, overseas sort of models because, again, the Canadians have got a similar um, discussions and the only reason they've got a a number of of members is because of um, others are, are paying for it. It's about the barriers, like to your hep C example, um, you know, the social determinants of health. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the guy, I always love saying he's a Professor Sir Michael Marmot, and he's a public health physician, originally Australian, but he um, worked with the World Health Organisation and is a guru of social determinants of health. Great book called um, Health Gap. Lots of books, but that's a really good book I've read recently. And he says, you can build the best system in the world, health system, but if people don't perceive that they can access it, then you won't get the outcomes. And the example that he gave was maternal mortality rates, um, but it was pretty appalling. It was, you know, one in 1,500 or something like that. Um, And in Italy... It was something like... No, sorry, it was 1 in 15. It was quite quite low. In Italy, it was 1 in 150,000. Know, it, was, it was significantly low. In the US, it's 1 in 1,500. And he said, so 
we have the best hospitals, you know, we, in terms of we built facilities. Do we have, do they have the best funding mechanism? We all know that's not true. But people don't perceive they can access it, and that's with the hep C. You've got the drug that can actually deliver a 96% cure rate, but if they don't perceive they can access it, and it's the stigma, we were talking about stigma earlier, that stigma doesn't matter that it's available. You've got to break that down first. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP podcast.